This morning we are going to uh, turn once again to the Psalms. So if you've been tracking with us over the last couple years, when Pastor Richard or Pastor uh, or, or, my, or I preach, not Pastor Doug, um, we've been going to the Psalms. So we've been working our way through the Psalms. Um, this is going to be our pattern. It's, it, it makes, uh, uh, for a couple things, we can study and know what we're preaching on ahead of time rather than working in with Doug and his series. Uh, and as well, the Psalms work a little bit better as kind of a one-time standalone um, study, standalone sermon. Um, we're going to go through Psalm 19 today. If you've been watching, Pastor Richard's been preaching the even Psalms. I've been preaching the odd Psalms. And so when we get to Psalm 119, there's good news and bad news. So the bad news is there's 176 verses. It's going to take like all day. Uh, the good news is we will, at the pace we're going, all be with our Lord and Savior at that time. So you probably won't have to listen. And even if you are still alive, you probably won't be able to hear much of it. So uh, today, however, we are going to be looking at Psalm 19, not 119. All right, so Psalm 19. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with all things having to do with space. I had, I had models of space shuttles. I would watch all of the space shuttle launches on television. I uh, had pictures of astronauts in my room. I was even part of a club at our community center called Young Astronauts. And it was basically a club that met once a month um, where all of the dorky kids in school got together and we learned about science and realized we weren't probably going to be able to communicate with girls very well. Uh, it was awesome. I loved it. Uh, and one summer, my parents even sent my brother and I to space camp. So if you remember back in the 80s, this was, this was the coolest thing for a kid. We got to go and it was just as good as you would imagine. We pretended we were astronauts for a week, dressed up like it, ate space ice cream. Uh, it was awesome. It was, a, it was one of the, the highlights of my childhood. But, but we did this because we were kind of mesmerized by space. We would look at the, the, the astronauts that went to the moon. We would look at the stars. We would look through our telescopes. And we would see things that are awe-inspiring, that are amazing. We look at space, and, and we see things that we don't see here, things that are huge and enormous. We are not alone. This has... Uh, been going on through the ages. The awe-inspiring heavens have gripped people throughout time. The Greeks and the Romans studied stars, and their mythology revolved around the constellations. We had ancient tribes and people groups who have worshipped the sun or worshipped the moon. This is, not, this is not something that's new. This is something that's been going on for a long time. People recognizing the awesome power and the otherness that we see in the heavens. Today, we are going to look at a psalm that addresses the awe-inspiring creation and look at how it relates to the creator and ultimately what it teaches us and what our response should be. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, here it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their wo words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. 
Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be, be, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant word. In this psalm, David reflects about how we can know about God. And he's not merely discussing how it is that we know God exists. But more than that, he's unpacking how we can know God's character, how we can know God personally, and then what implications this has on our lives. Throughout God's cre- through God's creative action and God's revealed word, mankind can know about the creator God and can know personally the covenant-keeping God and it can be reconciled to him through the promises of God. In verses 1 through 6, first we see the reflection of God's glory. We see the reflection of God's glory. Specifically, here we see the reflection of God's glory in the created universe. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Simply put, the heavens, the heavens have something to say about God about the one who made the heavens. All right, so we're going to take a little bit of of a rabbit trail here, uh, but but I promise this will be helpful in fully understanding the passage. Um, It's it's been interesting over the last uh, eight weeks or so, Pastor Doug has been taking us through a a Sunday school class on the foundations of Scripture. And he's been talking about how God's Word is communicated to us and how we get our Bible and how translations work and the different decisions that translators have to make when they are translating the Greek and the Hebrew texts into English so we can read it and we can understand it for ourselves. Um, and, and a couple weeks ago, if you were in there, you recall he, he used uh, a term called formal equivalence, formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. And, and that's, a, that's a term used to describe a theory in translation. So in formal equivalence, for lack of a better term, would be a more literal translation. And, and I can literally hear Doug cringing when I say the word literal. Uh, However, it is a translation that seeks, as best it can, to uh, keep the same type of sentence structure and wording structure, uh, even as it's translating from one language to another. Dynamic equivalence, then, is on the other end of the spectrum. It's seeking to accurately communicate God's word as well, but it's, it's uh, the type of translation that's seeking to communicate the thought and, and do so using updated language patterns. So so neither type of translation is right or wrong. Both types of translation use some some of the other, um, and there are advantages to each. So in a translation that uses more of a dynamic equivalence or or, or thought groups, so think like NIV, a good 
translation, a good dynamic equivalent translation at that end of the spectrum, the sentences read a bit easier, right? So they're using more updated English. The arguments can be a bit easier to follow at times. Um, however, you lose a bit of the thematic patterns, a little bit of the wording um, that, that can help clue you in on, onto things that are happening. In a translation with more formal equivalents, so think um, King James or the ESV that I'm reading out of uh, this morning, the wording can often uh, be awkward or wooden because the structure of the sentence uh, is, is, is kind of upheld, but, um, but it helps you sometimes pick up intertextual clues. You can, you can hear words in, in one passage and, and you can relate it to other parts of the Bible, and, and the author is doing that on purpose. They're pointing back to other parts of the Bible. So, okay, so knowing this, I, I think it's really helpful um, to look at verse 1 in a different translation to help us pick up on something. If we look closely, we can be uh, clued in onto what David is referencing here. So, if you have your King James version of the Bible, and um, I hope you do, uh, take a look at what verse 1 says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. All right, so what stands out in the second half of that verse? What's the weird, what's the odd word? It's firmament, right? It's firmament. What is firmament? It's a weird word. We don't use that word. It's an outdated word. We don't use this anymore, but, but who has heard this term before? Where have we heard this term before, right? Everybody who grew up like I did here in the King James Version has heard this term probably a lot because it comes from the first book of the Bible in Genesis 1. If you, if you turn there, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, starting in verse 6, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so, and God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. We don't use that word anymore, right? We have better translations. We don't use that word anymore. But it helps us clue in on what David is referencing here. The firmament that is, that, that, that is used in Genesis 1 is, is um, a more ancient understanding of cosmology that saw the firmament as sort of a sealed environment that God created to tame the chaotic waters and support life. It's actually n- not that bad of a way of describing the atmosphere uh, even without its scientific eloquence. Um, but using the word, we see the connection. So we see Genesis 1 and Psalm 19. David is referring to the heavens and the firmament. Why is this important? So, so when we read Psalm 19, David is not merely just looking around at the world. He's not merely just looking at the sky and saying, wow, isn't God great? He, he is saying that. He is saying all of that. But he's looking at more than that. He's looking at God in creation. He's looking at the creator God, the God that is described in Genesis 1, the God that created everything out of nothing and ascribing glory to that God, to the powerful, creative, beautiful God. He looks at the heavens and his mind races back to in the beginning. We look at the heavens, that's where our mind should go as well, in the beginning. When we look at creation, we are not looking at something that God uses. We are not looking at something that God merely makes beautiful uh, by changing it. We are looking at something that by his very word, God spoke into existence. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God's glory is reflected and it is proclaimed in creation. 
David goes on to describe how God has revealed himself into all of mankind. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So both day and night display the awesome power of God. There's a sun in the sky above. There's heavenly bodies at night. There's stars. There's moon. There's planets that we can see. They are on display. And in all of this, God is uh, speaking, uh, and, and we see the awesome creative power of God. It communicates to all mankind, to everyone, everywhere, that there is a God who is responsible for creating everything, and he is completely other than us. We can't do this. This was God in creation. So this is obvious, right? We see creation. This points toward a creator. This should be obvious. Uh, there's not nothing around us. There are things around us. And uh, there is something that is responsible for those things. And we can know something about God because he has shown us this in this general revelation to all mankind. This is true. and This is right. And this is often suppressed. This can be suppressed. A few years ago, um, I got into a discussion about creation with one of my coworkers. And um, this dude is brilliant. He is a smart engineer, probably the, the, the best mind that we have working at our company. He is one of the go-to guys when you have a hard problem. He's got um, uh, a master's degree in engineering from Michigan State. So um, it, it, he is, he's, he's brilliant. Um, but we started talking about creation. He told me about this new book that he got called A Universe from Nothing by Lawrence Krauss. And it's not some obscure book. Um, and, and, and that title was not meant to be ironic. The dude wrote that with a straight face. Um, a Universe from Nothing. It is a New York Times bestseller. So I went home, I bought the book on Amazon so I could equip myself for this conversation. And uh, it is incredible what is being put out there is truth. So a brief excerpt. He says, in the interest of full disclosure right at the outset, I must admit that I am not sympathetic to the conviction that creation requires a creator, which is at the basis of all the world's religions. Every day, beautiful and miraculous objects suddenly appear, from snowflakes on a cold winter morning to vibrant rainbows after a late afternoon summer shower. Yet no one but the most ardent fundamentalists would suggest that each and every object is lovingly and painstakingly and most important purposefully created by a divine intelligence. In fact, many lay people, as well as scientists, revel in our ability to explain how snowflakes and rainbows and sponta uh, can spontaneously appear based on simple, elegant laws of physics. All right, so right away we see a lot of problems here, right? So, so first and foremost, it's been a long time since I've been called a fundamentalist. So I think there's... Uh, uh, a certain humor in that for me. Uh, but beyond that, we see some significant category errors here, right? The author is constructing a straw man argument, and then he, and then he pounds it down. Um, as Christians, we do, in fact, take seriously God's sovereign hand in all things. We do think that God has a personal interaction with his creation, and he is behind all things. And as rational thinking humans, we recognize the scientific principles in play behind the formation of snowflakes or, or the appearance of a rainbow. We, we well understand the water molecules can either come together and crystallize and fall as snow or they can be a mist that light is reflected through. Uh, but even in this, we should be seeing God at work. 
First, the formation of the snowflake is not creating something from nothing. It's creating something from something, right? Uh, but second, we believe in a personal God who created the world and the laws of physics in an orderly fashion so that these things happen. We can predict these things. It is orderly, just like our God is orderly. The material world is subject to his laws. God works through the means of his created world to bring about circumstances. We don't see, uh, we don't see a disconnect here. We see God in these things. This is true, and the truth is suppressed. And, and, and we look around our created world, and common sense should tell us there must be a creator. David marvels at God's work in creation, and, and this pointed him to a creator. It should do no less for us. Through God's creative action, mankind can know about the creator God. David continues in the psalm then with a metaphorical description of the sun. He says, starting in verse 4, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So he moves from an example of general creation to a more specific example of the sun. And in this, he's kind of using this as a representation from the whole. The sun shines upon all men. There has never been anyone who was born who was not affected by the sun, who has not experienced its effects and benefited from the sun. No one can escape the sun. He describes it as a bridegroom leaving his chamber. This is, this is um, a description that is very public, right? So, so he is not presented to the community. The bridegroom wouldn't be presented to the community in a private manner. This is a public uh, thing where people will come out and see him. The wedding is, is public, and this description confirms that God's revelation of himself in creation is public. He also describes it as a strong man, a champion running its course with joy. It's purposeful. The sun is purposed and it, it has a pattern and it follows that pattern. And it is a good thing. It is, God is not hiding in creation. God uh, is the God of creation and, and, and then creation thus reflects God's glory. We can learn about God from his general revelation to us. All right, so, so for you then, how does this affect you? How does this affect your day-to-day? If you're here, odds are you probably already believe in the God of creation, right? And, and, and if you don't, that's okay. We can talk about that further, but, but how does this affect you? We should look at the sky above, and with David, we should see the glory of God reflected in God's handiwork. God is great, and he is beautiful and powerful and grand, and he is awesome. This should drive us to worship. Right? This should drive us to worship this great God. Second, secondly, we should not shrink back then from difficult conversations about God and his creation. It, it might be intimidating, and certainly it was intimidating for me to talk with a coworker about creation when he thinks I'm an idiot. Right? He thinks I'm simple-minded, old-school, old-fashioned, fundamentalist, uh, and we should not uh, be afraid of this. Right? We should uh, equip ourselves for this interaction, but not afraid. We have God's truth. Right? We have God's truth on our side, and we have an orderly and good creation that is screaming out, I have a creator. As Christians, we're not afraid of truth. Right? We don't shrink back from this. And this can be an effective bridge to the gospel. I don't care about convincing my friend that there is an intelligent designer that created the world. I, I do care about that. Right? But that's not, that's not the goal. That doesn't 
do, it doesn't benefit him unless, unless it leads to telling him about how he can be made right with that creator. Finally, we should recognize that nothing is hidden from our creator God. So like the metaphor of the sun rising from one end of the earth to the other, setting its course, everyone is affected by it. Everyone experiences it. Everyone can see God in his creation. Likewise, God sees all things. We are ever present before God. There is nothing that is hidden from him. Our lives, our good works, and our sin are on full display before him. We are exposed before him. We can't run from this. Um, we, one day, will be called to give an account. We are part of his creation. He's the one, then, over all things. That which is done in private is never outside of the view of God. All right, David confirms we learn about God from general revelation. This is true, right? We learn some things about God. We see an orderly God. We see a beautiful God. We see a creative God. We learn some things about God, but we do not learn everything that we need to know about God from creation. We learn he's creator. We learn he's powerful. We learn he's other than us, um, but we don't learn all things. We don't get to know his character personally through this general revelation. This only comes to us by the revelation of God's word. So it comes to us by the revelation of God's word. Verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. All right, so, so here David transitions from general revelations, from the God that's, that's showing himself in the created world, to the God that's giving us special revelation, that's giving us his word in the scriptures. He's going from the knowledge about God, available to all mankind, to the knowledge about God, available, made available through his word. In this first portion, then, he has four very specific things that the word does. First, the word is perfect, reviving the soul. All right, so when he says perfect here, he means it in the sense that it is complete. It is whole. It lacks nothing from the Lord. It, it is listed first, and, and the completeness here um, uh, kind of shows that it is sufficient. God's, God's word is sufficient and is the foundation and basis for all of the rest of the characteristics of his word. It is perfect, and it revives the soul uh, the word revive here contains within it some, some meaning of repenting and returning. God's perfect word awakens the soul. It stirs the soul. It stirs within us, um, and we are convicted of sin, and we repent and we turn back toward our God. God's word, God's special revelation in his word does this. This is, this is one of the reasons we place so, place so much emphasis on the word here at Crossway. We were discussing in our new members class this past Wednesday, um, we don't believe this is some ordinary book. We don't believe it's some good piece of literature. Uh, it is a book. It's a good piece of literature, but we don't believe it's merely that. We believe that it's the very word of God. And, and because of this reality, we believe that God uses his word, that God uses this book to change people, to revive the soul. Through his scripture that he communicated to us, he uses his word to awaken our soul, to renew our minds, and to make us more and more in the image of his son. The word does this. God's law is perfect. It revives the soul. We hear God's sufficient word, and we are changed. 
Second thing he says is that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's word is sure. It is trustworthy. God does not communicate to us falsehoods. He communicates to us truth, perfect truth in his word. It is sure. It is a solid word from God, and it makes wise the simple. The idea here is that a word from God is a guide for wise living, for maturing and changing immature people who live for themselves into mature people who live according to God's ways. We look to the scriptures, and in them we see instruction for wise interaction with one another and for right interaction with God. God's inerrant word is reliable, and it is sure, and it makes wise and matures those who look to it by faith. The third thing he says is that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's precepts are God's commandments for, the, for right living are given to us. I don't have to wonder often, what is God's will for my life? God has laid down his expectations. He's given us these expectations. And David here says that these commandments are not a drudgery, but rather they're a joy. This, this sounds very similar to what he has written in the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of God, and he finds joy as he is walking within the expectations of his Lord. As we read through the word of God, we see that these expectations are very relevant to us today. The book is um, a couple thousand years old, at the, at, even older in some parts, and, and yet it gives us clear, sound instruction about who God is, about who we are, about who Christ is and about what he has done for us and how God expects his people then to respond. The precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, indeed are right. And they do bring joy for those who abide in the will of God. Finally, he says the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Uh, The term pure here also can mean radiant. Um, It is often used when describing the sun. So so the word of God is pure. It is is radiant. It is a life-giving word to all those who hear and believe it. It opens blinders. It, It allows the truth of God to shine in. And through the word, we are made alive. God illuminates our darkened minds, and he gives us a new understanding and new insights. We are made alive and livened through the word. David describes God's word, God's special revelation in these terms, right? He, he, says, he says this is how it works. It is sufficient. It is reliable. It is relevant. It gives life. And then he changes gears a little bit, and he says this is, this is how it interacts with the hearer. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh is clean. It purifies the believer. Our our response to the scriptures then, as we see the God of the scriptures, should be a healthy fear of God. This This is something that results in reverent awe. He is powerful and holy and just. This is something that results in heightened obedience as we see what he expects of us. David says the rules of the Lord uh, are true and they're righteous altogether. So, so just like we heard from Doug last week, God is, not, God is not setting a standard and then conforming himself to this standard. God is the standard. God's character is the standard. What is righteous and true 
is righteous and true because it is an expression of God's character. God uh, is the one who sets that because that is who God is. Um, it is necessarily right because it is from God's character. The rules of the Lord are righteous and true because God himself is righteous and true. And his expression can be anything, can't be anything but. We see then that God's word is sufficient, it is reliable, it is relevant, it is life-giving, it is true, it is righteous. And then what? He says this makes the, it valuable. This is valuable to us. David compares its value to gold and its sweetness to honey. We have value in this word. We treat this word differently than we treat all other books because without this word, we have no hope of being made right of the God that he talked about in the first six verses. We have no hope of connecting with our creator without this word. We value this word. We treat this word differently. When I was a child, I used to collect baseball cards, right? So when I was seven or eight, I would walk down to the butcher shop, I would buy a 25 cent pack of cards, I would eat the terrible hard gum, I would then sit with my friends, we would look through them, and we were hoping, beyond hope, to find tigers, right? We, that's all we cared about. And, and occasionally we, we would get a tiger, and if we were very fortunate, we would get the tiger, Alan Trammell, he would, he would pop out of there, we would celebrate, um, best shortstop ever, non-negotiable, uh, under church discipline if you disagree. <laughs> when I got a little older, I kept collecting cards and I started to get a bunch of them. And I started filling boxes with these cards, tons of them. And I started paying attention to the value of the cards. We would get the magazines, we would look through, okay, this card's worth this much, this card's worth this much. We would treat the cards differently according to their value. Right? So for the crummy play, like the Red Sox and the Yankees, we would throw in a box, bend the corners, worthless, didn't care. Um, and, and that's true and right and good. Um, and, and they were not valued by me or anyone else. Uh, but some of my cards were valuable, right? So for my birthday one year, when I was 14, I got the Alan Trammell rookie card. I can still see this card in my mind today. It was awesome. It had Trammell on one side, Paul Molitor on the other, a really terrible yellow border, a little red ink blot. Uh, it was awesome. It was worth like $50 back in 1991. So for a 14-year-old, that's huge value, right? That's huge value. I treated this card differently. I took the card, I put it behind this glass container with four screws. I, I, I didn't want the corners to get damaged or the ink to get smudged. I didn't let my stupid friends handle the card because they might do something to it. It was valuable to me. I treated the card differently. Um, the way I interacted with it was different because of its value. So I still have the card today, and none of you are allowed to handle it either. Um, all right, now apply this principle to God's word. Right? We treat things different according to their value. All right, so, so I am not talking about keeping your Bible in mint condition. Tear this bad boy up, right? Go through it. I think, I think it was Spurgeon that said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Uh, I remember seeing my grandma's Bible. It looked like it went through a meat grinder. She used that thing heavily. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the content of the words. That is what, val what is valuable. That is where the treasure is. We have the very words of our creator, God. And we need this word from God. If we have any hope, any hope of knowing him personally, we value God's word. It is more valuable to us than gold. It is sweeter to us than honey. 
as Christians, this is the, con, uh, this is the conduit by which we have access to God. Um, he says, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's word should be esteemed and prized and cherished and valued and loved. All right, so, so, so bringing it down to our level, right? How, do, how does this apply? I, I would talk to most of you. You probably would mostly all agree. Yes, God's word is valuable. God's word is valuable to me. We should recognize that God's word only is valuable, only affects change. Um, the way David describes it here, if we're in the Bible, if we're reading God's word, right? If we never pick up the Bible, if we coast through sermons, thinking of other things, if we don't ever read it for ourselves, if we don't talk about it with one another, if it's something that is never on our minds, if it's just something that we bring as a prop to church, we should have no expectation that it will do anything to us. You are showing by the way that you're treating it. It is not valuable to you. God's word is living and active, and it truly does all of the things that David describes. It only applies, though, if we're in the word. This makes sense, right? We do not get this through osmosis. We read the Bible. We read it by faith, and we ask the Spirit for help in understanding and applying it. And then secondly, we filter everything we hear through this grid. We filter it through the Bible. As we are reading the Bible, we are gaining discernment according to what God has written, and then we are better able to navigate the gray areas of life. One of my friends told me this week that the gray areas of life are where it's interesting. There are some things in the world that are clear-cut in the Bible, some things that we've been even uh, learning about lately, right? Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, uh, but there are some areas of life that are not as clear-cut. Should I take this job or not? How should I serve my neighbor? Should I confront a brother about a perceived slighter? Is this an instance where love covers a multitude of sins? It's only as we are immersing ourselves in God's word and he is renewing our mind and changing us and making us more into his image that we will be able to navigate these gray areas and do so according to the word of God. As our mind is informed and transformed by the word of God, we are able to better act in accordance to the way God would have us act. The more we are in the word, the more that God is remaking and refining our thought process. God has reflected his glory to all of mankind and creation, and God has revealed himself and his character through his word. And finally, in this psalm, we see the response of God's people. We see the response of God's people, verses 12 through 14. So after reflecting upon the revelation of, of God to all mankind, he now, you know, examine, or of God to mankind, he now examines the response and this, that this should in, uh, evoke in the people of God. He said, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be, be, be blameless and innocent of great transgression. All right, so David, in light of God's word, recognizes his own sinfulness. And it causes to him to confess in what I think is three different ways. So first, he asks the rhetorical question, who can discern his errors or who can discern his own errors? He's not talking about God's errors. Those don't exist, right? Who can discern his own errors? He is expressing that we have 
sin. And I think what he's talking about here is incidental sin, sin that we commit without even realizing it. So theologians would refer to this as inadvertent sin, sins that um, we do, um, things that we do that are sinful that we don't even realize we are doing. Um, these are difficult to repent of specifically because unless God shows us where we have been sinful, we don't even know that we're doing that. Um, it doesn't make the sin unimportant. It doesn't make the sin any less deadly, but it does mean that we are blind to our own violation. I think secondly then, in a separate category, God is asking, or David is asking God to declare him innocent from hidden faults. These are likely distinct from what he is referring to above. Um, these are hidden uh, not from himself, um, or, or they're not inadvertent, but they are sins done in secret. This is, this is cheating on a test. This is uh, lying to a boss when you don't think you're going to get caught. This is looking at pornography or reading a trashy novel uh, or any number of sins that can be committed in private, hidden from the eyes of others. Uh, and then finally, he asked God to keep him from presumptuous sins, or as the NIV calls them, willful sins. These are blatant, willful, public acts of rebellion against God and his law. It is knowing what is right and what is wrong and choosing to do wrong even in front of the watching world. In any event, in all of these cases, David is asking for the mercy of God. That's the point. He's asking for the mercy of God because he knows. He knows that he's been sinful. He sees the God in creation. He sees God's expectations in his word. And he knows he has failed to live up to those expectations. And he needs the mercy of God. This is where we must land. As God's people, we have seen his glory reflected in creation. We have seen his character revealed in his word, and we must respond to him in repentance and faith, pleading for his mercy and asking for his forgiveness. We are sinful, and we cannot achieve, achieve a state of sinlessness. One commentator said, humans can no more achieve sinlessness than they can avoid breathing. Even if one could keep the law precisely and avoid all known sin, there are always those inadvertent errors of which one is unaware. We are sinful, and I think more often than not, we are well aware of our own sinfulness. David recognized this, and he went to the only place he could. He fell on the mercy of God. He responded as a child of God. He turned to God, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, he turned to God in contrition, in repentance. He trusted the covenant promises of God, and he followed them by faith. This is no different for us today. We are hopelessly sinful. We have violated the law of a holy God. He is a righteous and just and holy judge. He is a good judge that calls sin, sin, and we stand before him condemned. We have been shown God in creation. We have heard from God as in, word, in his word, and even, even at that, we don't live according to his righteous standard. It says in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and this includes me, this includes you. But the story does not end there. In God's word, we have life. We've been given hope. We see more clearly now than what David saw in part. We have the full and complete revelation of Jesus Christ. The old covenant pointed forward to the one who would come the one who would inaugurate a new covenant. Jesus came and fulfilled the law perfectly. He is the one who upheld 
God's righteous standard. He is the one who was perfect, whole, and complete. He is the one who brings joy, and it is by his spirit that our hearts are enlivened. Our blind eyes are opened. All those who call out to God for mercy, who repent of their sin, and trust in the promises of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, in his word, are redeemed. David concludes his response with this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So in Christ, we have the full revelation of God to us. We have the rock and the redeemer on whom we base all of our faith upon. So united to Christ, then, our words and our works can be acceptable to God. United to Christ, we are redeemed, and we truly have a solid rock and a firm foundation. We submit to God's word, we repent of sin, and we live a life of faith in the promises of God and a life recognizing the lordship of Christ. In all of this, like David, we humbly depend on God's mercy and God's grace as our redeemer. As I was studying through the passage this week, I couldn't help but uh, see another, um, an a- another application, a-, a-, a parallel account David, in the psalm, systematically reveals, uh, talks about God revealing himself in nature, and then God revealing himself in his word, and, and then how we are res- to respond. I, I, I read this in psalms, and even as I'm reading this, I, I'm thinking of Romans, right? So in, in Paul's letters to the Romans, he picks up on the same themes. So first, he shows that God is revealed to all mankind in nature. He says in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says here, all of mankind stands without excuse. God has revealed himself To every person on the planet, he's shown his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. That God exists is plain in his creation. Sin has clouded our thinking. The fall has has done us in, but he has revealed himself in creation, and even so, mankind has not honored him as creator. Mankind has rejected the creator, and there's a rift, a gulf, a separation between the two that cannot be reconciled by natural revelation. So as we think through this corporately, as crossway, right, this should cause us to look outside ourselves. There are people, there are men and women and children who can see the general revelation of God in creation. They know that God exists. And that's it. There are people groups who do not have access to the word, to the special revelation, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And creation is the extent of their knowledge of God. The unreached peoples 
who have not heard the gospel, they only know enough about God to stand condemned before God. They do not have the, the ability to respond to God, to cry out for mercy, because they do not have a redeemer to extend mercy to them if they do not hear. Jesus is not known there, and he cannot be known through God's general revelation. There is a problem, right? But God doesn't leave it there. He has given us his son. He has given us special revelation in his word. The gospel is the life-giving message that changes all of this. Paul later writes in the same letter, for there is, and, and, and Brianne read it this morning, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the, same, uh, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, thinking through this corporately at Crossway, this should affect us, should invigorate us. This should, this should cause us to have motivation in evangelism. This should cause us to have motivation toward missions. There are those who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, and Christ has commanded us to make disciples of all nations, teaching them the full counsel of God. In, in Psalm 19, David expresses how essential the word of God is to being made right with God. And there are those who don't even have access to this word, to this special revelation. But God has chosen us. God has chosen me. God has chosen you to, make, uh, to, to, to be the means by which this is reversed. We are the ones who are to bring the gospel to those who have not heard. We are God's plan A when it comes to spreading the word of God, and there is no plan B. We are to be about the business of sharing the gospel, praying for conversions, supporting missions both in prayer and with our wallets, and by going. God has revealed himself in his word, but that word is only effective for them if it gets there in time. Through God's creative action, mankind can know about the creator God. Through God's revealed word, mankind can know about the covenant-keeping God and can be reconciled to him through the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank and praise you that you have not left us unto ourselves, that you have not just shown us yourself in creation, but Lord, you have done more than that. You have given us your very word. You have given us your promises. Lord, we see in your word, you reveal your character. We see you reveal your plan. We see you have revealed your son to us. And Lord, it is through him that we cry out for mercy. We respond asking for your mercy, for we have not lived up to your righteous standard. Lord, I pray that you forgive us. I pray that we live a life of repentance, that we live a life pursuing God. Lord, I pray that you give us um, a changed heart, that we would not go away thinking the same, but we would go away seeing you in creation, seeing you in your word, and responding in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.